so excited to uh, to welcome you all to Hebron Baptist Church. To, uh, we're, we're gathered to worship and praise our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and uh, it's it's thrilling to see everybody here, um, just the family of God gathered. He's called us together to worship Him, um, and as we are obedient to that call, uh, let's stand together and read this scripture together. This is from Psalms. Hallelujah. My soul, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. Do not trust in nobles, in a son of man who cannot save. When his breath leaves him, he returns to the ground. On that day, his plans die. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Zion, your God reigns for all generations. Hallelujah. our blessed Redeemer. Sing, oh, earth is wonderful love proclaim. Hail Him, hail Him, highest archangels in glory. Strength and honor give to His holy name. 
our blessed Redeemer. Sing, O earth, this wonderful love proclaim. Praise Him, praise Him, tell of His excellent greatness. Praise Him, praise Him, ever in joyful song. Praise Him, Sing this together. 
person to take their next steps toward Christ. My name is Alan, and it is such a joy to join with you on worship today. This has been so much fun already. Thank you for singing today. This is awesome. Well, if you're a guest here with us today, we're so glad that you are here. We want to extend a special welcome to you. Thank you for joining, whether in person or online. We would love to get to know you more, and if you like, one way we can do that is through a Connect card. A Connect card looks like this. It's seated in the pew in front of you. If you would pull this out and fill this out, this will let us know how we can be praying for you, how we can be serving you. And then after service, if you would walk through these central doors, you'll turn left, and you'll see there our Next Steps desk. You can turn this card in there, meet someone at that desk, who'd be happy to answer any questions that you may have, and would also love to give you a free gift. So welcome to our guests we're so glad that you're here today. As always, we'd like to encourage our worship through giving. If you'd like to give, there's a few ways that you can do that. One way is through an online giving card. This is also in the pew in front of you. If you pull this out, you can scan that QR code with your phone. That'll take you to our online giving page. If you prefer to give in person, there are black boxes on the back of the walls here you can drop a gift in. You can also come into the office Monday through Thursday, 9 to 4.30, or Friday, 9 to noon, or you can write to P.O. Box 92, Hebron, Kentucky, 41048. All right, well, we're going to join now in a moment of prayer. I invite you to please pray with me. Lord, we come here today to worship you. Thank you, God. Today is a day that you've given us breath once again, a heartbeat once again, and that we can come here with our lives and give you praise. We worship you. And with that in mind, this morning, Lord, we lift up to you our church's core value of engaging worship. Thank you, Father, for the invitation to worship you, our maker, our creator, our savior. Lord, we ask that you would continue to give us greater and greater glimpses of how great and worthy of worship you are. And that our lives would, in turn, reflect that we need to worship you. That we would bow before you and give you our praise and our lives. Lord, let our, our voices here in church give you worship. Let our moments of, of quiet time at home give you worship. In all that we do with our lives, let us worship you. 
Father, we lift up to you our upcoming VBS. We thank you for this opportunity to share your love with so many little hearts who will come here. And we pray that you would draw them. Lord, that you would draw many lives to be here and then draw their hearts to a life of worshiping you. That even in their, their little lives, that they would see how great and worthy of worship you are and that they would give their worship to you. This morning, Lord, we don't only pray for ourselves, but we pray for those on the other side of the globe in London at Mosaic Multicultural Church. We pray that you would bless this congregation led by pastor and church planter Alex Brito. Would you please bless this church this morning to engage with you through worship. Bless their hearts to bring you genuine praise. Be glorified there. And we pray that you would use this church in a mighty way, that many would come to worship you throughout London and beyond. Father, our hearts go out to those experiencing conflict in Ukraine and Russia. And we continue to ask that you would bring peace to this conflict. We pray for government leaders. We ask that you would give them wisdom. We ask that you would bring peace to the situation. Lord, we pray for those, for those individuals and families, civilians who have experienced loss and trauma. We pray that somehow through this dark time that you would draw many to you, that you would bring healing and that your good news of Jesus would go out through this. Please give strength to believers, sustain their faith, provide for their physical needs and their spiritual needs. Please be lifted up in this situation. Finally, Lord, we come to you today, broken and in need of a Savior. We confess now our need for you. We cannot go through this life without you. We have all fallen short of your holy standards. You are pure and you are holy. And in that vision, Lord, we see how great we have sinned, how great we have fallen from your perfect holiness. We ask that you would please forgive us. And we thank you that the amazing hope we have is not in ourselves, but it's in your son, Jesus, who lived a pure and holy life where we have all fallen short and who died a death that we deserved, but he took for us. We thank you for his power and death that he broke through death and rose again. And that is our hope. So we put our hope in you today. We experience your forgiveness and we praise you for who you are and what you're doing. Please continue to be glorified this morning in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and as we reflect on, on that prayer of confession, we realize that God created us to be in relationship with him. His desire is for us to want to seek him as Abba, as Father. And the tragedy is that we've rejected that in our hearts. And from, from the day we were born, we fled from that. And, um, and we, we didn't want that. But the truth is God pursues us. And the good news is that through Jesus Christ, there is not a single sin that we can commit. There's no separation from God that is too big that Jesus' blood cannot cover. And that is why we're here today. That is why we're family under Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that. Let's sing that together. Storm and food. 
Christ is risen, Jesus, you are Lord of all. No beginning and no end, you're my hope and my defense. You come to seek and save the Christ is risen, Jesus, you are Lord of Christ is risen, Jesus, you are Lord of all. You are stronger, you are stronger, sin is broken, you have saved me. It is written, Christ is risen, Jesus, you are Lord of all. Excellent word, 
What more can he say than to you he has said, to you for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, O oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God, I will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. I call you to go the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow for I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest Thank you for singing. That uh, hymn, uh, 
we don't get often a lot of time to explain him sometimes that one when we sing it I don't know if you know this there really ought to be quotation marks around the entire thing um, that song is the Lord God singing to us so we're using sort of God's word to encourage one another with that song when you sing it um, so when he says that so though all hell should endeavor to shake I, I is God God will never no never no never forsake and it is with that that we come into our time of spending in God's word together we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7 today uh, so if you would turn in your Bible to Isaiah 7, if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 605 in the Bible in front of you, if you want to read along, and I would encourage you to, to check and make sure that what I'm saying is true. While you're turning there, just take a moment to think about, every one of us knows someone in our lives that when they speak, they speak with authority, whether they have it or not. Ladies, don't turn. Don't turn and look. Don't give him the look. He knows. There's people who, who are so confident in what they're saying when they have no idea what they're saying. Um, we are brought up in this culture, at least, to encourage our children, and I was, and I'm sure you were, to encourage to be confident because confidence is what gets you a job, right? You walk into a, an interview and you want to sound sure of yourself whether you are or not. Self-confidence is a value that we as a culture prize. We teach it in school, we call it self-esteem, but it's the same thing. Um, there are other kinds of confidence in our world that we can even baptize on occasion. Sometimes we, have con sometimes we talk about confidence in the sense that God will answer our prayers, no matter what they are, if we believe them, if we're confident enough in what we are asking for, that God will just give us whatever we ask. That's sort of the prevailing theology of what you might have heard of as the uh, prosperity gospel movement or the name it and claim it movement. That is, if I ask God for something and I ask for it with enough confidence that God will in fact, can in fact, and will in fact give it to me, then I will receive it. I challenge you to try that. Uh, you will find that it will fail you because that's not how it works. So today, we want to spend our I want to spend our time as we look to God's word in Isaiah 7 to think about what sorts of things we ought to put our faith in. What do we have reason to be confident in? Uh, we're not going to spend our time talking necessarily about the sort of faith that you have, that, that you are saved, right? Uh, that the, the Bible tells us that by faith we are saved. That's not the kind of faith we're going to be talking about today. But I want to talk about what faith in God looks like in an everyday sort of way. Faith in God that results in obedience. So that's what I want us to think on as we look at God's word together. Hopefully you've made it to Isaiah 7. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire uh, chapter together because we're going to look at the thing as a whole. And um, if we have limited time, I'd rather spend it hearing from God than hearing from me. So if you would, turn and uh, open to Isaiah 7. I'll read it out loud. You can read it quietly to yourself and let's see what God has to say. This is God's word. 
This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Aram's king Rezin, and Israel's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of this people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son Sher Jashub to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has plotted harm against you, they say. Let us go up against Judah. Sorry, let us go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief of Aram is Damascus. The chief city of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The chief of Ephraim is Samaria, and the chief city of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is good and, sorry, reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows how to reject what is bad and and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. On that day, the Lord will whistle to flies at the farthest streams of the Nile and to bees in the land of Assyria. All of them will come and settle in the deep, steep ravines and the clefts of the rock, in all of the thorn bushes and in all of the water holes. On that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave the hair on your heads, the hair on your legs, and even your beards. On that day, a man will raise a young cow and two sheep. And from the abundant milk they give, he will eat curds. For every survivor in the land will eat curds and honey. And on that day, every place where there were a thousand vines, worth a thousand pieces of silver, will become thorns and briars. A man will go there with bow and arrows, because the whole land will be thorns and briars. You will not go to all the hills that were once tilled with a hoe for fear of the thorns and briars. These hills will be replaced will be places for oxen to graze and for sheep to trample. This is God's word. Let's pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence that you have placed in your people who you have purchased with your blood. Father, we pray that you would help us to put our confidence and our faith firmly in something that's worth putting our confidence and faith in. Help us to see that that is indeed not ourselves, 
but wholly and completely in you and your plan for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look today at Standing Firm. That's the title of the sermon, and um, it's rather obvious from the, from the text. So we're going to see together four things having to do with standing firm from our text. So if you're taking notes, the very first point will be that we stand firm because God has already proven himself. Now, we looked at the text. We would see in verse 1 that these two armies that have been going against um, Jerusalem, that are, that, are, that are knocking at the door of Jerusalem to take it over, um, have not prevailed. Okay? These two armies include the northern kingdom. Now, this, without some context, this can be a little confusing. We don't really quite see how awful this situation is. The northern kingdom is Israel. Israel is attacking Jerusalem. The, the good guys, it's not really easy to determine at this point. Because the king of Judah, or the king of the southern kingdom, the, the, the kingdom in which, if you know your history, what good kings there were came from Judah. Not to say that all of them were good. As a matter of fact, the king that we looked at, we're looking at today um, is not one of the good kings. Ahaz is not one of the good kings. But so Aram and the northern kingdom had not yet prevailed because God had prevented them. The Bible doesn't tell us that God had prevented them, but we know that God is sovereign over all things, and that then would be the reason why they have yet to, to prevail upon Judah. Secondly, Isaiah targets and describes Ahaz, and I'm going to make sure I say Ahaz because I get Ahaz and Aram mixed up, so you'll forgive me if I do that while we're talking. So Ahaz, the king of, of Judah, has been identified as the house of David. There's a reason why, in verse 2, that Isaiah addresses Ahaz as house of David. It was to remind Ahaz of what God had done in maintaining a king on David's throne up to this point. All through the divided kingdom, which had been torn apart, couldn't decide on a king together, and they fought amongst themselves and divided into two kingdoms, which the Lord God had actually prophesied earlier on, right? So we have, uh, we have Israel as a bigger, in a bigger picture in somewhat of a civil war. And yet, through this civil war, the house of David has been preserved. And speaking of preservation, the last thing that we see in the text that shows us that we should stand firm because God has already proven himself the Lord God tells Isaiah to go to the king with his son in tow. And you might, if you're looking closely at this text, say, why? What difference does it make? Why did he bring his son? We don't see very much reference to this son, the rest of the, of the book, or the rest of the Bible. So why include that? Well, interestingly enough, it gives us his name, which we probably skipped over because we can't pronounce it. But it's Shir Jashub is his name, okay? And, well, that's my English um, version of it. I'm sure that's probably not right. But that word in English means a remnant shall remain. That's what his name meant. His name wasn't like John, okay? That wasn't like a common name people had. There was a reason why Isaiah named his child that. And I'm sure he had a reason in mind. And to some extent, that didn't, uh, he may not have known the full reason why he had done it, but he, he named him this nonetheless. This reminds me of the story of how my oldest, my daughter, my only daughter, my oldest child, how her name came about. Some of you know this story and some of you don't. 
Uh, my wife and I, Wendy and I, had, uh, had had three miscarriages before Sarah Beth was born. And so when God gave, graced us with her, in fact, after our last one, the doctors told us that the chances of us ever having children were very, very slim. That was really difficult for us, as, as many of you who have been through that experience can attest to. Um, and, but as you, those, those of us who know us know that the Lord God has been gracious to us anyway, because we have four kids. So praise God for that. Um, but what we, we decided we wanted to name her Sarah Elizabeth. Those are the names of two, ba- uh, two barren women in the Old Testament. And we wanted that to be a reminder to us that we were without children, and we were told we might not be able to have children, and only by God's grace and only by his power were we able to have that experience, to have children of our own. And so that was to be a reminder. So we kind of knew that. We did that on purpose. But what's interesting is as time has gone on, as she's been an important part of our family, as all of our children are, there's been times where we needed that reminder. And I think you know what I'm referring to. It's why you're laughing right now, right? And it hasn't just been her, so I'm not trying to give her just a hard time, because sometimes it's one of the other kids. But having a child named after women who couldn't have children reminds us that God gave us children as a blessing. He gave us children. We couldn't have them on our own power, right? So we're reminded that as difficult as the days are in parenthood, as many of them are difficult, we're reminded constantly by her presence and by her name that God has been gracious to us. And we need to have that perspective as we parent all four of our children that God could have not given us our children. And that's a good thing. And that is a gracious thing. And so we need to see them as God's And be reminded in the difficult days that God has been good to us in giving us children. Much like Sarah Beth, we all have monuments to God's faithfulness in our lives. You may not always think about them this way. We don't do it quite the way Israel did, where something cool happens and we put up a pile of rocks and call it a monument and remember it forever. We don't generally do that, although to some extent we do. You you might look around and see monuments here and there. We we write gravestones. And, and monuments to, 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 to people and their lives. We, we certainly do that. But our lives are filled with these sorts of reminders that God has been gracious and already has proven himself to us. Um, perhaps the chief of these is the empty tomb. That constant reminder that tomb is empty, that Jesus Christ is not dead, that, Jesus, that, that the Lord God is powerful over sin, death, and the grave. We have that in our lives as a constant reminder. For the unbeliever or, or the, uh, the, the believer struggling in sin right now, every breath you have is a monument to God's grace. Romans 2 verse 4 says, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Every breath we take in this life is a gift to us to remind us that God could strike us dead for our sin at any moment and he would be right in doing so. But he is good and he is gracious and loving and forgiving 
And so every breath we take is a monument to the goodness of God. Those of us who are married, we have a, uh, it's our custom, at least in this part of the world, to put a ring on the third finger of our left hand or whatever the saying goes, right? Some countries it's the right hand. And, but we, <clears throat> it's gotten increasingly popular to do a tattoo there, which is cool, I guess. Um, but we have that reminder, <clears throat> excuse me, that, um, that, that this monument to God's goodness and grace to us in our lives. So much like Sarah Beth and our family reminds us that children are a blessing. Sometimes us married couples need reminder that our spouse is a blessing. Days aren't always easy in marriage. And we have that reminder on our finger that not only that we're committed to this person, but that God was good enough to give us them and to them. And when we're inclined to be ungrateful for our spouse, that's meant to remind us that, it is a, that our spouse is a gift and we ought to treat them as a gift. I think about Isaiah's son, a remnant shall remain. I'm gonna name, maybe if we ever have a fifth kid, I'll name him a remnant shall remain in English. That'll be hyphenated or something. I don't know, I'm just kidding. It's a joke. But um, here's a question about you. In your relationships, in your family, in your friendships, in your workplace, are you a monument of God's faithfulness? Do others know you as a testament to what God has done? Do you have friends or family that are grateful to have you around because you're a monument to God's goodness? Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, then you are a monument to God's goodness. But we don't always act like one. Let this be a reminder. Let's, even for this random tiny little reference to Isaiah's son, let that be a reminder to us that we ought to be wherever we are. When people look at us and hear us speak, they're like, God is so good. God has been so good to them. God has been good to save them from their sins, most importantly. But God has been good to deliver them from this, to provide them for, for them in that, to, to bless them. Would we always be spouting God's blessing everywhere we go and telling everybody how good God has been to us, that we would be a walking monument to God's faithfulness to his people? And lastly, one of the, ones, one of the monuments that we're inclined to forget is the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace among God's people. The people that are sitting in this room, many of us have no other reason that we would ever have anything to do with one another than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you, you everybody works in different places. Everybody comes from different backgrounds. They may not even be from here. A vast majority of the people that live here aren't from here. And, and we have different interests. Some of you guys like watch this thing called sports, which I don't understand. <laughs> we have different, we're different people. There is no other reason that the people that are gathered in this room right now should be together except for Jesus Christ. Our unity is a monument to the dividing wall of hostility that God has broken down in Christ. And that monument is gonna be even more beautiful as the days progress, as more and more from every tribe, tongue, and nation gather to worship Jesus Christ. And one day we'll do so forever. What a gorgeous picture of God's 
goodness. Our unity is a monument to God's goodness. But there's a word of warning, not necessarily in the text, but I think it's good and pastoral for us to consider this. Um, There are some who would apply this sense of victory as a foregone conclusion to everything, right? So that's what we're inclined to do. We're inclined to take this call to stand firm and stand firm in everything. But we need to see, secondly, that we stand firm, but not for pragmatic reasons. And here's what I mean by that. We don't live in confidence so that we might achieve God's blessing. So we don't live our lives as a testimony to God's goodness so that he will bless us. We don't pray in faith so that God would give us everything we ask for. It's not a tool to receive God's blessing. And let me explain further. So from the text here, we're not meant to think that Ahaz's confidence would lead to victory as a cause-effect relationship. Because first off, how much faith does Ahaz demonstrate? Well, he's terrified. He's shaking. He's trembling. Isaiah says, calm down. It'll be all right. And he says, God will even give you a sign. And he says, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to test God. I don't want to risk anything. So, so Ahaz doesn't demonstrate very much faith in this story. But God is faithful. God gives what he promises to give despite Ahaz's lack of confidence. In Acts chapter 3, verse 12, Come, this, this verse comes right after a man is healed. Uh, he's a lame man. He couldn't walk, and he's healed. And everybody's amazed at what Peter has done to, to heal this man. And Peter says this, this phrase, and we were reading it together in family worship this week, and it just struck me. This is Acts chapter 3, verse 12. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? Peter makes it a point to say that when he is healed, when this man has been healed, even though it was Peter that did whatever hand motion or said whatever thing, it wasn't hocus pocus, right? It was the Lord God who healed him. And Peter is pointing to God as the one who healed the man. It wasn't that the man's faith was instrumental to, to bring about his healing. It was that God healed him. And then he rejoiced in that healing. Uh, I'm going to give us a little illustration that uh, for some of us will we'll be familiar with and others may not be. We're going to watch this video together from a very, very famous movie that I'm sure most of you will recognize right away. Let's watch that together.
All right, so here's what's interesting about that scene. So, um, <clears throat> I wonder, this was my favorite, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. If, you, if you've not seen this before, this is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And what he's supposed to do is take this, what's called a leap of faith across that chasm. So you have to just kind of step out. And I've always wondered this, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and maybe I'm just overthinking it, but if he didn't have faith but stepped out, would he have fallen? I don't know. I don't know. But here's what's interesting. Um, one of my favorite things that I was, I was watching again this week, it struck me, I'd never noticed this before. Do you notice at the very end, that scene, that's the, 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 shot, the camera shot from when he's down below, the, from below the bridge, and you can see it's clearly like a stone bridge that was just camouflaged? So, and, and the, the re I'm inclined to say that even if he didn't step out with faith in his heart, he still would have walked across the bridge because it was there, objectively. It was just camouflage. He couldn't see it. Because, when, again, that camera shot, it's clearly this big stone bridge. And just in case that wasn't the case, at the very end, he does an interesting thing. He goes and picks up that handful of dirt and throws it back across. Now, wouldn't you think he would need to have faith to go back across backwards? Shouldn't he not need the sand in order to go back across? But if you watch the rest of the movie, he does make it back across. So um, that's an interesting thought. And, and it, honestly, um, well, anyway, I'll, I'll get ahead of myself. So uh, his leap of faith here is not instrumental. It wasn't something in his heart. He does this overdramatic thing where he clutches his chest and takes a big breath. And by the way, he, like, what's this about? Like, a little bit overdramatic, I think. I mean, I think I might be doing, you know, you know, a little, little, and you might say, well, that's not faith. Well, here's the thing. Again, the bridge is still there. He could have tipped his foot out and kind of done this number, and, and just to be sure, the whole way across, because the bridge is there. His faith isn't instrumental. What does his faith do? It makes him take the step. His faith doesn't make the bridge appear. His faith makes him take the step. I think that's more what the faith that's being described in Isaiah is all about. It's not a faith that, that demands from God some result, but it's a faith that causes us to step out in obedience. That's the kind of faith that Isaiah, the Lord God through Isaiah, is calling Ahaz to. Be calm and quiet. So for us, the application then is, let's not have faith in faith. Let me say that again. Let's not have faith in faith. Sometimes you doubt your salvation. Many of us have had this experience. I don't know if I really meant it when I prayed to receive Christ. I'm just not sure I was sincere enough to get saved. Well, I, I, I would argue from the, here and from the rest of Scripture that it's not your sincerity that ever saved you in the first place. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. We are saved by Jesus. Through faith, yes, we need to take the step of, of, of repentance and faith, sure. But we're not saved because of our faith. We're saved because Jesus did it. That's what saves us. Not our sincerity, not our uh, uh, confidence, no, the faith is what makes us step out. But the bridge is already there. So it matters uh, in, in, the, in the long 
meta-narrative that is the Indiana Jones franchise, right? This is a recurring theme over and over again, if you've ever paid attention. In every Indiana Jones film at the beginning, Indiana Jones is a skeptic. He never, he never believes whatever the supernatural thing that's supposed to happen. Raiders of the Lost Ark, he's like, the Ark is a bunch of hogwash, I don't believe it. And then at the very end, he's witnessing the power of the Ark, and it changes everything. The Temple of Doom, he doesn't believe in all of the, the magic stones, and then suddenly they work at the end. But what's funny is he does it every time. There's never a point where he begins the movie, he goes, I've seen all this crazy stuff, I'm just going to believe whatever it is. It's a recurring theme in Indiana Jones. His faith is an important part that makes the story go along. The faith, our faith, God wants our faith. It matters to God that we trust in him. And that's our third point. We stand firm because God cares that we trust in him. When I say that faith is not the thing that makes God act, you still need to have faith. God cares that we trust in him. Verse two tells us that not only was Ahaz scared out of his mind, but the hearts of the people trembled too. This is a message not just for the king. The king is a representative for the entire nation. They all were trembling. Verse 4 and verse 9, God wants Ahaz to stand firm, even while it is God who brings about victory for Judah and defeat for her enemies. God is going to bring these things out, even while Ahaz either believes or doesn't. And then in verse 13 to 16, which we'll talk about even more uh, specifically here in a moment, God is aware that we need his help to believe. So Isaiah offers to Ahaz, God offers through, Israel, uh, through Isaiah to Ahaz, hey, I'll give you a sign. Pick any sign. How awesome would that be if God offered that to us? <laughs> How many times have you thought, God, just give me a sign? And God, at this moment, for Ahaz says, pick and choose. He'll be as high as heaven and as low as Sheol. Anything, nothing is out of bounds. What does Ahaz say? Nah. Why? Why wouldn't he take it? Because he didn't have faith, right? He is an unfaithful king. And we have all these other evidences, by the way, in the book of 1 Kings, uh, tells the story of Ahaz and it's not pretty. He's not a good king, okay? But he refuses to receive the sign. But God cared enough to give him the sign. That's a grace. And God cares enough for us to give us the way to have faith. Not just to ask us to have faith and wait for us to just put it together and figure it out. He gives us reasons to, be faith, to have faith in him. In our own lives, and we've seen this, maybe you've experienced this, a measure of friendship in a relationship that you have, a measure of friendship, might be, at least one of the measures of friendship, is your ability to ask the person a favor with no questions asked. If you can call somebody up and say, I need you to come to my house right now, and I can't explain to you why, and that person comes, that person is a friend, right? That's sort of, that's how we can, that's the diagnostic of what our true friends are, right? They, they don't necessarily need to know all the details. They just trust us, and they want to be there when we need them. That's the way God is with us. He wants us to trust in him, and he wants us to trust in him so badly 
that he gives us reasons. He doesn't have to. He's given us all the reasons that we need, but he gives us reason after reason to trust in him. You see, here's the problem. We go back to Genesis chapter 3 and the original uh, temptation in Adam and Eve. And when the, the serpent, we later find out is Satan, tempts Eve, he tempts her by causing her to doubt in the character of God. Verse, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, it says, In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, that is the fruit that we're not supposed to eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent says, the only reason that God doesn't want you to eat from the tree is because he doesn't want you to be like him. Causing Eve to doubt God's goodness, that God would be just and right and good. So maybe God's just selfish, she thought to herself. Maybe God's just trying to hog all the power for himself. And, and that's, that's the problem. That's the, the thing that we have in us that causes us not to have faith because we're inclined to doubt God's goodness. But then God gives us every evidence that he is good. If you're, if you're, if you're questioning, if you're, if you're sort of learning about Christianity, this is new to you, um, I want you to know, the rest of us who have read Scripture hopefully know this, God is no chump. When I say that God wants for us to trust in him, that he wants for us to believe in him, he doesn't need for us to believe in him. He's not sitting in the corner worried that maybe we will or maybe we won't, right? That's not how God is. It is not a function of his codependency. It is not a function of his uh, needfulness, as though there was something lacking in God. It is a function of his love. He loves. He can't help himself. He's so loving. So an example of this we see in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Uh, just like Indiana Jones, we were talking about like, uh, would, would, would Indiana Jones, would he not have been able to cross if he tiptoed, you know, did this number? Well, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? When, when Jesus is talking to the Father, he says, if it all possible, may this cup pass from me. So Jesus says, I don't want to go to the cross. At least not in his flesh. I don't want to go there. But your will be done. So even in a moment of Jesus' weakness as a, as, as a man, as a human being, he's weak in a moment and he says, I really, really don't want to go to the cross. However, my trust in the Father overrides my personal desire to avoid suffering. That's faith. It's not, oh, I'm not worried about suffering. I'm not worried about what's going to happen in front of me. No, no, no. There's plenty of room for that. That's normal. It's when we trust in God despite our circumstances, right? That's what God wants from us. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done from the Lord and not for people. He wants us to do things for him but he, and, in, and in faith, but he's, he's willing to take us that way. Trusting in God means if you're struggling with identity, who am I? And we all of us struggle with that at some point in our lives in different capacities. I realize that there's a growing reality of people who struggle with, you know, I know that my body seems to indicate that I'm a male, but I just think I'm a female. I feel like I'm the other thing, right? But that's not the only identity problem we deal with. All of us deal with sometimes, if you lose a job, you think, who am I? I don't even know who I am anymore. And you might think to yourself, I'm this or I'm that. But then you look at the scripture and it tells you something different. I don't think I'm very worthwhile. 
I think I'm a scumbag. I don't think I'm very, I don't think people like me. That's who I think I am. I think I'm a horrible person. But the Bible sometimes tells us something different. And in that moment, faith is believing what God said, even when our circumstances seem to say the opposite. Believing what God said instead of believing in what we feel. Believing what God said and doing what God said, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's counterintuitive. There are things that God calls us to do that we think, man, I sure think this would be a better way. And we'd be wrong. Because God's way is better. So faith is trusting in God even when our feelings and our circumstances say the other thing. God wants us to trust in him over what might be expedient for the church. There are a lot of things the Bible tells us to do as the church, and we think, yeah, but that's, we don't got to keep up with the times. If we don't keep up with the times, we're going to lose people. But here's the thing about that. There's, a, there's been an experiment over the last 130, 140 years within sort of broader Christianity, and this is this idea, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's called liberalism, theological liberalism. I'm not talking about political liberalism. I'm not talking about Democrat versus Republican. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a desire, a fear of losing influence in the world and capitulating to the world out of that fear. So if we can take all the supernatural stuff out of the Bible, for instance, maybe people might believe. If we... And so if we just leave the moral stuff in there, we'll just be good people. And that's the point of the Bible anyway. We'll just take out all that supernatural stuff. Well, here's the problem. And there's other things. So um, the Bible tells us to do these things that we don't want to do, right? The Bible says things that are unpopular, like, the fact, like, like that calling homosexuality a sin. It's very unpopular. So if we just take this stuff out of the Bible, then we'll have more people in the church and we'll be okay. Well, here's the result of that experiment. We've done doing that for long enough to know what results in that experiment. Do you know what the result is? A dying church. Those churches that have taken on the ideas of let's, let's, let's not say the Bible says so that the world will like us better are the fastest dying churches in the world. There was an interesting quote I heard from, uh, uh, from a, a Roman Catholic theologian reflecting on, if you're familiar with the history, uh, uh, the Vatican II uh, Council happened in the, the 20th century. Um, they, made a lot, they did a lot theologically to try to open the church. And, he said, and the guy, this guy was a Roman Catholic theologian. He was in seminary at the time. And he said, I was so excited because I felt like for the first time in a long time, the doors of the church were opened to the world, that the world would then come in. But he said, decades later, I've realized that when we opened the doors of the church, it left. It left. That didn't work. Jettisoning the Bible, not trusting what God has said despite what our feelings are, didn't work. It doesn't result in more people believing. It results in more people leaving because it's got to cost us something. The Bible is calling us, the Lord God is calling us to live differently than the world. And we need to live differently. And it's hard. And it's ugly. And it's messy. But the other side of that is blessing beyond what we could ever experience on earth. He cares so much 
that we put our trust in him, that he's come to be with us to make that easier. So that's our last point. We stand firm because God is with us. There's two interesting names for children in this story. We looked at the first one, Shir Jashub, which means a remnant shall remain. Another interesting child's name that appears in verse 14 is Emmanuel. Now, many of us are familiar with this passage because it's quoted a lot around Christmas time. And we, most, maybe most of us know that the word Emmanuel means God with us. Um, it doesn't actually say that in this text because it doesn't need to translate that. It does that in the New Testament for us. But it means God with us. And so when Isaiah says that a, a, a son will be born from a virgin and his name will be called Emmanuel, this has been, a, 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 this has been an interesting passage over the last couple millennia. It's been debated quite a bit because here's the thing. We've always attributed this to Christ. And spoiler alert, I do think it, I do think it also is referring to Christ. But I don't think it is only referring to Christ. And here's the reason. When we look at the passage, the prophecy of Emmanuel is meant to point Ahaz to hope in his current circumstance, right? This is a sign that God will not allow these armies to prevail on Jerusalem. And so when he says a virgin will be, or a child will be born from a virgin, I do believe that that's obviously a reference to Mary and Jesus. So don't, don't write me off yet. But it's meant to give hope to, it, to Isaiah to, in his time too. So what you can also translate that, to, you can understand that in the Hebrew is that a child will be born from someone who is a virgin now and in the time between being conceived after now and they're old enough to be that sort of age of accountability somewhere between 13 and 20. So sometime in the next 13 to 20 years, God is going to defeat your enemies and give you peace. So that was intended to be a, an encouragement to Isaiah. So at the time, either a literal woman who was currently a virgin but would not be anymore would give birth to a child named Emmanuel that would be a monument to God's blessing and that in the next 13 to 20 years that God was going to defeat their enemies. So for Ahaz, it should have received that as this is hope. God's making a promise to defeat his enemies. But here's the good news. The second meaning is for us because it also refers to Jesus. The son will be born from a virgin who is not, a, it's not like she's not a virgin anymore. She was a virgin when Jesus was conceived because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He grew up and defeated the most formidable enemies, sin, death, and the grave, giving not just Ahaz, not just Judah, not just Isaiah hope, but to give hope for everyone who has ever and will ever live that if we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, we will be saved. God is with us. Amen? Do you believe that? In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's one of the books in the uh, series of Chronicles of Narnia, which many of us are familiar with because of the film, uh, but many more of us, I hope, have read it. And if you haven't, please do. Um, I think it will bless your soul to read it. But there's a scene near the end, there's this battle, huge battle, and, um, and the good guys are losing. The, the armies of Narnia are losing. It's a losing battle against the armies of the White Witch. And they're terrified. And they're almost routed. They don't know what to do. And Aslan shows up. And as soon as everyone sees the lion, hears his roar, hears the word 
that he's here, he's back, he's risen again from the dead. That's interesting. Risen again from the dead is here. The whole army of Narnia rallies, and they think, we can do it now. Why? Because Aslan is here. Because Aslan is with us. And that's what the presence of God in our lives is supposed to be encouraging to us to be like. God is with us. And even more than Christ, who came and lived among us, who had then ascended to the Father, God is with us even more intimately in the Holy Spirit, who he sent down. He said, it's a good thing that I go to the Father, because Jesus says, if I go to the Father, then the Comforter can come. The Spirit. It will be better. God will be more present and a greater monument to God's faithfulness in our own selves. He will dwell with us and in us and through us. And we will then be monuments to God's faithfulness. So we've looked at the scripture. We've looked at Isaiah 7. We've seen that we, we stand firm because God has already proven himself. We stand firm, but not for pragmatic reasons. We stand firm because God cares. We trust in him. And lastly, we stand firm because we know that God is with us. Now, for all of us in this room, how do you think Ahaz responded when Isaiah says, stand firm? Do you think he was miraculously converted? No. He never changed. He was an evil king. wasn't a good king. Standing firm seemed impossible to him. How could I stand firm when my enemies are at the gate? And standing firm, having confidence and faith in God, may seem impossible to you and your circumstance. The disciples struggled with this. When Jesus died on the cross, all of them ran away. Peter, most explicitly, denies God. But God is telling us that we can cry out to him for help. Not just with big things, but with little things, and most importantly, with faith. It's a gift. He can give you. He can give you faith if you'd ask him. So let me encourage you. God's power is perfect in our weakness. If standing firm in your faith seems like a challenge, it's because it is because it's one that God is meant to work through us. If we would just call out to him, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would find us faithful, that we would trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who was dead three days and who rose again from the grave. I pray that you'd help us to have faith and trust even when it's hard. And um, we will give you praise for it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. His microphone's not on. It's not because we've exercised our, our spiritual muscles more or anything like that. It's because it's a gift from God, and it happens through Jesus Christ.
It is so cool to see, uh, Mike, how God is using you through Being Renewed Ministries. Please pray about how you can support Mike and his ministry. Well, thank you all so very much for joining us in worship today. Thank you, Mark, for bringing that awesome message. And thank you, Brian, for your leadership in worship today. Uh, just a few quick reminders before we go. Once again, if you are a guest, thank you for joining today. If you would stop by our Next Steps desk, there you can learn about any questions you may have and uh, turn in your Connect card. We'd love to give you a free gift there. Also, um, if you uh, would like to join in helping with Vacation Bible School, please pray about that. We need a few more helpers. You can see Christy Reed out at the desk out here, so please stop by her area in the lobby. That would be awesome. And please be praying and inviting your neighbors and local kids to come to VBS. It's just a few weeks out. Then finally, today at 4 o'clock is Gospel to Every Home. If you'd like, please come out and help share the gospel. There will be child care provided. It will be super cool. 
Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining. God bless you. Have a great week.